Well, you'll know by now that today is uh, the last Sunday of the Christian year, uh, the Feast of Christ the King, we call it. Again, when we say feast, we mean a celebration, but sadly there's no lunch being served here afterward. It's still a festival, and I do hope that your lunch is fantastic, but we are celebrating the Feast of Christ or the festival of Christ the King. And I like to think of Christ the King Sunday as kind of a punctuation mark. It's an exclamatory, even clarifying summary of sorts. It reminds us in no uncertain terms that the nature of the kingdom of God and of King Jesus is a paradox. That's what I want to talk about today. The seeming contradiction is actually captured in all of the gospel readings, the assigned gospel readings for each of the three years in our lectionary. And if you don't know, the readings that we have on Sunday morning, they come from a, a, what we call a lectionary over three years of hopefully bringing the whole council of Scripture to the church in those three years. It's a patient walk. And uh, so it's captured. That contradiction is captured in those reading and readings, and it's also captured in a familiar image and an icon of Jesus that I'm going to show you in just a few minutes. Last year, which is year B, for those who are keeping track, A, B, and C, we read John 18, 33 through 37, and Jesus is standing before Pilate, and maybe you know the scene. Pilate is interrogating him, and he's asking, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus answers, basically, yes, but. And the but is important. He says, my kingdom is nothing like yours. If my kingdom were of this world, Jesus says, my servants would have been fighting to protect me, but my kingdom is not from the world. The rightful king of heaven, all heaven and all earth, puts himself at the mercy of a backwater Roman governor, willingly and purposefully. And there is a paradox. Next year we'll read Matthew 25, 31 and following, wherein Jesus clarifies the ethics of this kingdom. And who will inherit it in the end? He's saying this, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He says, Then the righteous will answer him, When did we do all of that for you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So the kingdom of heaven, paradoxically, belongs to the humble, to the generous, and to the self-giving. And their king is actually served by seeing a seeing and blessing the down and out, just like he did and just like he does because that's what he has done for us because we are the down and out, by the way. Sometimes we just think otherwise. Sometimes we can't deny it at all. And so this year, year C, in Luke 23, the king is hanging accursed between criminals, seemingly helpless beneath a mocking inscription declaring him the king of the Jews. He's not even, if you think about it, he's not even singular in this moment, dying like a vaunted revolutionary. He's just one among three rabble-rousers being put down by the empire. According to John's Gospel, the sign above him was inscribed in three languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, leaving no confusion about the might of Rome and the meaning of the cross, at least as far as they were concerned. 
So his cross of suffering, his cross of humility, it is the power of the king and of his kingdom. The king who restrains, the king who even delays his power to deliver on his benevolence. He descends into death himself to subvert death's power over him and over us. Hanging there, he identifies fully with those living our all-too-human lives, the abandoned, the subjugated, the abused, the tortured, and the powerless, but also the lonely and the discouraged and the misunderstood and the lied to and the lied about. So the message of the cross should be clear, shouldn't it? It should be clear. So why is it so hard to understand how the church keeps missing it? But here's the thing. I think the answer lives within this story. I think the answer is pretty obvious because of how much power, power itself really has over us. That's why it's so hard to see God's power displayed in weakness and self-giving. Because of how powerful power is. How quickly freedom, even personal freedom, just spills its banks into entitlement and control. Personally. Politically. Doing what? Corrupting whole lives and corrupting relationships and systems and governments. Power is powerful. I want to show you an icon, the point of which, as with other icons, or even when we, you know, over the cross itself, is to give us something visual as we ponder, as we pray, as we reflect, and as we meditate. Um, and I'm not, this isn't a commercial for using icons in your prayer and worship, right? As we say about crossing yourself, all can, some will, none must. But I think this icon speaks powerfully to our point today about our king. Here it is. Bauer, if you put that up there. You ever seen that? It's called the Christ Pantocrator. Christ All-Powerful. Or Christ Almighty. How many of you have seen this image before? You probably have. Let me just set the historical background a bit because it's important to what you're looking at right here. From October 8th until November 1st of 451 A.D., which is a long time ago, 520 bishops or their representatives met, bishops of the church, they met in the city of Chalcedon in the region of Bithynia, which is now a, a suburb of modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. Right? Chalcedon was the fourth of seven ecumenical councils. Ecumenical just means the broader church, just means everybody. Here's what our province, the Anglican Church of North America, has to say about these councils. These seven councils. Concerning the seven councils of the undivided church, we affirm their teaching of the first four councils and the Christological clarifications of the fifth, sixth, and seven councils insofar as they are agreeable to the Holy Scriptures. So the councils matter to our church. Maybe that's new for you. Maybe you never even heard the councils of the ecumenical or the ecumenical councils of the church in the tradition you're from. 
And there was a lot of other like really practical minutiae addressed in the council, such as when do we celebrate Easter? What day do we celebrate it on? But honestly, the theological stuff is what we affirm and what we believe is indispensable, not merely because of what is said, but because they said it at all. They said it at a time in history where it mattered. They were facing the confusion and controversies of their day, which are often sort of relived again today. So things needed to be clarified. And so from the councils, we got the creeds, which was clarity that emerged not from just a bunch of ideas, but from an embodied faith that was lived by people long before us and to whom we are connected indelibly. Because as I say often, Christianity, it isn't just a set of ideas or propositional truths that emerge from a sacred text. We study the text and we find out what Christianity is about, which it's... Um, not just that, but it's at least that. Christianity is a church. And frankly, it's nothing without a church and a history, warts and all, like it or not. And let me put it this way, and this is important in our day, personal sincerity can never be a substitute for Catholicity. Personal sincerity can never be a substitute for being connected for belonging to a corporate body, a shared history and a shared story through space and time. We don't get to make it up and do it on our own. To extract the Christian faith from its earthy, communal, and even contingent context, the contingency of being people and being flawed and yielding to God and and combining our our experiences and our thoughts and our prayers together, this is what makes it uh, coherent. And if it's something other than that, it's something other than Christianity. So they were there in Chalcedon to continue settling some of the questions of what Christianity does and what it does not teach about Jesus, particularly regarding his humanity and his divinity, including where he came from, including how he relates to the Father and to the Spirit. And so here's the resulting language of Chalcedon. It was that Jesus was both God and man without separation or confusion paradox. In short, he's both mysteriously, so live with it. We have these two candles on on the table between which we bless the sacraments of bread and wine, and these are actually a visual reminder, if you don't know this, of Jesus' eternal union as God and man. Now, don't worry if one happens to blow out. It doesn't change anything about Jesus, but they are there to remind us. These candles enlighten us every Sunday with the seeming paradox of our belief, the transcendence and the imminence of God. Or to put it another way, the holiness and the humanness of Christ, our Lord. Now, back to the icon. I'm going to go to the next one. We're going to zoom in on Jesus' face a little bit. Take a a closer look at Jesus' face. This icon, it was actually painted around the same time as Chalcedon. That council was painted in a monastery on Mount Sinai in Egypt. Does it look a bit strange to you? Does it look like maybe the artist kind of didn't do so well with symmetry? It's meant to look strange to you. It's intentionally strange because it's an attempt to capture the mystery and the paradox that I'm talking about. What does Christ all-powerful seem to have? Why does he seem to have two expressions on his face? If you take his right side and make a composite of it, he would look like this. And what do you see there? 
What does his face give you? How does it make you feel? Now, if you take his left side and do the same, here's the result. What do you see there? How does that make you feel? How would you describe him? Now, let's go back uh, a couple slides. There you go. Uh, Paul Contino is a professor of great books at Pepperdine University, and he writes about the councils and icons in the historic church, and he says this. He says, observe the asymmetry of Jesus' face and pay particular attention to the eyes. From the viewer's left, Jesus' face is open and receptive, his eye projecting tenderness and acceptance and mercy. Here is the redemptive Christ. On the viewer's right side, though, Jesus' face is different. His lip turns down slightly, His eye seems to scrutinize and judge the viewer. Here we are responsible for the violence and injustice that blights our world, for sin. Jesus' eye interrogates, what have we done and what have we left undone? So what the ancient iconographer was attempting to capture is the paradox of Christ's power staring us right in the face. Here it is, mercy and challenge. Salvation and judgment, forgiveness and holiness, provision and protection, empathy and expectation, love and justice, humility and power, grace, but not without truth. In this face we receive the gift, but in this face we also receive the call. Jesus is the God-man. We call this the kenosis, the self-emptying of God to fill the earth with his glory. Paradox. The willing lamb who bears the judgment that he himself brings and will bring to finally and fully vindicate the world he loves from its bondage to corruption. And I think that's captured in that face. The lamb and the Lord. And so in our gospel today, this reality is as stark as the contours of his body hanging against a dusky dusky sky. On the one side is a man who wastes his remaining breath to harmonize with the Roman soldiers, mocking. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Because that's what God would really do if he was hung on a Roman cross, right? If he was subjugated. Seemingly, he would save himself, and certainly he would save his people. He wouldn't let an idolatrous empire torture and mock Jews. How could he do that and be God? So prove right now what you've been claiming. Now is the moment. Now. And then you have the criminal on the other side of Jesus, who responds to that one with a sharp rebuke. And he's enlightened by something more powerful than his suffering. And his guilt. He sees in Jesus an innocent man and he knows it full well. Maybe he even feels it. He seems to know, he seems to believe that there is power in what Jesus is suffering, in what he is allowing. Somehow, he even knows this can be for his benefit. How does he know that? We don't know. That on the other side of his his death, there must be a kingdom because to his eyes, there on the cross next to him is power under restraint. The power to hand himself over willingly and to apparently be emptied of that power. We don't know how this criminal knows what he does. We just don't know how he believes as he does, but he does. 
The paradox somehow makes sense to him. The mystery is made known. And maybe he really is, folks, the first to understand and receive Jesus for who he really is and the kingdom for what it really means. So what might this paradox mean for us in our day and in our lives? At least a few things. It must mean that we no longer cling to our deistic ideas of God apart from the Jesus of both history and heaven. The man upstairs moralism that we're meant to reject and that is to blame for much of the, the, the power grabbing and political adultery that has polluted the church in America. We don't play that game. Conversely, it also means we reject a spiritualism that makes Jesus an advisor or a committee member in our lives, not a king. Only believing his words that work for us while we actually pluck him out of his actual story and out of the history of the church. The story affirmed by untold thousands of contemporaries and eyewitnesses. It means we simultaneously, we reject the sentimentalism of a grace without truth and the fundamentalism of a truth without grace. It means his kingdom is still not of this world. Do you know that? But it's undeniably in this world, and I hope you know that. It's in this world as clothing comes to nakedness and food comes to a famished belly. By the way, thank you for all that you brought for the food drive last Sunday for, the, uh, for Catholic charities. It's in this world as our gnawing, fleshly temptations are actually met with the strength of His Spirit. The Spirit's tangible comfort. The kingdom is in this world as a smallest church gathers on Old Buncombe Road around a table to celebrate with all of heaven and all the saints throughout all time and all places. I mean, Really. But the kingdom is also not of this world, ultimately under the sway of Pilate or the next president. Not of this world, malleable to the whims and the wantonness of culture. It's a kingdom not of this world, reducible to the church's worst efforts to embody it and make it known. You know, Jesus is king in spite of us. But he wants to be king by means of us. It's a kingdom that is coming and will come to hold everything up to the light and by that light will purify and redeem it and honestly beginning with the church. That's good news. And lastly, it means that anyone who claims Jesus on his own terms, Jesus Christ as Lord, as Master, as Kyrios, as we say, is by definition not only claiming that Jesus is God, but that he is King and ruler of our lives, of everything. Every cell and every square inch. Is that what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord? Because that's what he means. He's king of everything, head to toe and beginning to end. If we claim the cross of Christ, we are claiming to live our lives under a true and lasting power, regardless of our circumstances. The cross is a power that cannot ultimately be subdued because the worst has already done its worst. And lost. And that's what we proclaim. The cross is a power that subverts worldly power that is by nature transient and fickle. It is a power that lasts. A power that has won and will win. And I want to close with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1. 
Listen to this. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paradox. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because guess what? The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You believe that? The weakness of God is stronger than men. And so the cross is a symbol of true power and of glory. It became, if you will, the earthly throne for Jesus upon which he, as he told Pilate in John 18, would bear witness to the truth that people kill God and by it God gives them life. The people strip and they starve and they weaken God and by it he clothes and feeds and strengthens them. Satan gloats over the humiliation and the murder of the one perfect human, the radiance of God's glory, as Paul tells us in Colossians, the gift of his very self. And by the cross, the relentless tempter and accuser and defamer is stripped of the powers that he believes he has over us. So there hanging between two criminals is the only really good news for a world captive to power and the only God really worthy of our worship. There in the face of the risen Lord is the compassion to see our need and to meet our need. And there also in his face is a holy determination to confront those things that might keep his kingdom and might keep his power from coming fully in us and through us. Search us is what we say when we say Jesus Christ is Lord. So today's merely another moment of faith just to embrace the seeming contradiction of his power and weakness and the cross as his glory, to confess Jesus as king on his terms and not ours, to confess the cross as our calling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just ask that you show us ever more deeply just how comprehensive your kingdom truly is. We want to coordinate off we want to give you the, the space that we're willing to give you but we ask that you take it all and help us to let you take it all let your kingdom work like leaven through the whole lump of our lives everything we touch lord bring us with all your saints into your heavenly kingdom where we shall see our lord face to face in the name of the father son and holy spirit amen